Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Back in 1995, the British rock musician Julian Cope wrote and published a short book called Krautrock Sampler, which was essentially a deep dive into the fascinating and innovative sounds of the progressive rock movement that emerged from Germany in the 1970s. Soon afterward, what was a niche interest among music geeks, critics, and musicians became a broader subgenre that would go on to influence countless younger generation bands and artists in the 21st century. Ah, but what about that unfortunate name? Seriously, calling this music kraut rock is a bit like calling hip-hop n-word music. We don't really like that. On this podcast, Chris and I prefer to call this rich tapestry of sounds and startlingly original bands German progressive rock. But, for brevity's sake, and I guess in deference to what has become common critics speak, we'll hold on to the Krautrock tag. Nevertheless, any nagging and haggling over the offensive name shouldn't overshadow the awe-inspiring depth, innovation, and musical diversity that these bands and collectives produced in the 1970s, a decade that was already loaded with depth, innovation, and musical diversity. Can may have been the greatest art rock band of all time with their cosmic rhythmic explorations and mind-blowingly original guitar sound. What band other than Noi, with the exclamation point at the end, can be called progenitors of both ambient music and punk rock? You can argue that the electronic music pioneers' craft work practically invented modern pop music. And those are just three bands from a deep well of powerfully talented artists who boldly attempted and succeeded in stripping rock music away from its blues roots and craft something never heard before and heard since only by artists who were either inspired by them or just ripped them off. Speaking of inspiration, here's a roll call of bands and artists who were touched by the kraut rock bug, either directly or indirectly. David Bowie, Brian Eno, Talking Heads, The Cure, Killing Joke, New Order, Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails, Beck, Radiohead, Africa Bombada, Public Enemy, and pretty much every electronic music artist from the 1980s onward. And that's just in the 20th century. In the 21st century, acclaimed bands such as TV on the Radio, LCD Sound System, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, The Men, Squid, and Working Men's Club would be inconceivable without the womb of 1970s German progressive rock and electronica that gave birth to them. 
So, what exactly was in the water of the Danube and Rhine rivers that nourished such transcendent brilliance in Germany's post-World War II generation? The Curmudgeon Rock Report will make a chronologically paced investigation and attempt to give the definitive history and timeline of this most fascinating of rock subgenres. Welcome to a Krautrock Exploration. I, I just want to uh, just uh, share a little bit from Julian Cope uh, in terms of what Krautrock is. And uh, this is just sort of wonderfully dopey, hippie, uh, uh, rock boy from the eighties kind of shit. So he says, quote, kraut rock is what punk would have been if Johnny Rotten alone had been in charge, a kind of pagan freak out LSD, explore the God in you by working the animal in you, Gnostic odyssey, a sort of very fit hawk wind without the doomsday science fiction. Kraut rock has been obscured in the eyes of the public who may be unaware that it was as holy as the stooges, Sun Ra and the MC5 all on one stage, or that it was transcendental comet fuck rock played by superfit amphetamine visionary poet druids and always had an attitude to the moon. <laughs> well, quote. Julian Cope, his writing about rock music has always been way, way better than his own music. Well, yeah, by, by, by a mile, uh, by a mile, but yeah. the, but it, but it is uh, it does bring up something, and we'll talk about this uh, as the the episode goes on. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me about Kashmika music, uh, yeah. as they actually called it, cosmic right. music, right, uh, is that one of the themes or one of the musical uh, aims seems to be capturing primitivism and futurism all at once. Right. Was that something you would agree with? No, totally. Yeah, I mean, especially some of the. Uh, some of the the earlier bands of the kraut rock scene, um, and sure. even Kraftwerk when they started out, they yeah. were basically a very very lightweight progressive rock band playing with flutes and violins and shit. Oh yeah, and they yeah they were very grudgy too. They yeah. very very good stuff. And so yeah, they, 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 yeah. they they made that trend around 73, 72, 73, They made that transition. And we're, yeah. we're definitely going to get into that in detail later on. Uh, before we do that, and like I said, the, these guys, uh, you know, they love the guys, the, the idea of outer space and uh, the philosophical realms, right? And uh, the themes of time and space. Yeah. Speaking of of time and space, uh, <laughs> we now need to uh, manipulate both of them to cross over into our parallel universe. Yep, it is the Curmudgeon Rock Reports. Uh, parallel universe over on uh, this side uh, of uh, the space-time continuum uh, everything is hunky-dory for rock uh, it's still awesome it's still on the billboards it's still on the radio uh, Taylor Swift is uh, joined uh, at the hip with Kurt Vile and Courtney Barnett uh, that's an image for you <laughs> and uh, so yes rock and roll uh, is still on the top of the mountain long live rock in the parallel universe uh, long way of saying, yeah, we cover uh, new and new-ish albums uh, by artists we think uh, don't get their due or should get more of a due, i.e. Uh, you should go out and check them out immediately after you listen to this here episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. So Arturo, I guess this is an excuse to indulge in one of your favorite bands of all time, uh, correct? 
Yes, we have talked at length before about the Brian Jonestown Massacre, particularly in the 1996 edition of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series. Oh, yeah. Go, go check it out, folks. It's still out there. Um, essentially, uh, the Anton Newcomb-led musical project has, since 1995, produced an extensive discography that has elevated 1960s-style folk rock and psychedelia to a level that out-60s the 60s for hazy, woozy, decadent, trancey, heavy trippiness. Along the way, Newcomb has embellished the Jonestown sound with shoegazer rock, heavy alternative, indie, blues rock, electronic dance beats, and even ambient soundscapes. Fitting, because we're going to talk a lot about that in this episode. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, last year... Newcomb came out of coronavirus lockdown with an album that pretty much recycled every musical style and trope Jonestown has navigated before to uninspiring effect. Uh, The name of that album was Fire Doesn't Grow on Trees. Not very good. It's just Jonestown by numbers with like just uninspired songwriting. However, with this year's album, The Future Is Your Past, Newcomb injects the band's current nothing new holding pattern with a healthy dose of improved songcraft and guitar work as well as much more inspired vocals and lyrics. It seems that good old Anton is once again pissed off at society and the world at large. And for a band that is so tied to its 1960s hippie roots, Newcomb never sounds more alive than when he's being a hippie punk. Like I said, you won't find any reinvention uh, of the wheel on this album. What it is, however, is a band, or better yet, a band leader, whose musical comfort and slight predictability in middle age, Newcomb turns 56 this year, is balanced by the musical reinvigoration of someone attacking the music with renewed vigor and passion. Like I said, nothing new, but at least he's actually trying a little harder this time. Uh, Suggested tracks, the light is about to change as the carousel swings and the brilliantly titled The Mother of All Fuckers. Chris? (laughs) Yeah, uh, that that actually made me laugh. Yeah, this is uh, Jonestown by Numbers, and uh, which is like, you know, meh. Uh, really solid guitar solos in a few spots on the record. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than that, you know, the songwriting to me is just not there. I think it's just a big uh, helping of uh, echoing uh, uh, reverby slop. Uh, album I'm talking about, uh, I think this is a really strong record, uh, was on a bunch of uh, top 10 lists uh, at the end of last year. Not on uh, Mojo's. Mojo didn't never even reviewed it. No, I mean, not on Mojo's, but it did show up on uh, a few European lists, and it also showed up on a couple of American uh, lists. Uh, I think Brooklyn Vegan had it pretty high, uh, a few other publications, but uh, this is an album. Brooklyn Vegan has a lot of garbage up high. (laughs) (laughs) Their music critics are atrocious. Well, I can't really agree with you considering like their top two albums were in my top 15 last year. And there was some other stuff in there that I really liked. So uh, I guess I'm more of a Brooklyn vegan guy than you are. <laughs> uh, that said, uh, so veering back to the point. So this is an album by a young lady uh, from England. Her name is Nalufer Yanya. Uh, she is uh, a mix of Turkish, Barbadian and Irish. So uh, this album is named Painless. It's her second record and uh, got acclaim and it deserved that acclaim. Uh, It's a strong record. 
and it's yes, it's a pop record. It's a uh, it's a confessional uh, female. I guess you could call it singer songwriter, and she's also a pretty good guitarist. So she's a a guitarist, singer, songwriter. Uh, it's one of those albums that, like a lot of albums over the last twenty five plus years, wouldn't exist without Jacket a Little Pill uh, by Alanis. Uh, but it's it's an interesting record in the sense that it's a sunny sounding pop record. It's got those crackling drum machines, very well produced, but it has a sunny sound with uh, with harmonies and vocal overdubs, and uh, it has a few songs with some really pretty uh, melodies. Uh, there's a few songs that are clearly influenced uh, in terms of the guitar playing uh, by Johnny Greenwood's uh, mid-period uh, Radiohead stuff, uh, i.e. in Rainbows, uh, which... Uh, is really kind of striking in an album like this. Uh, yeah. You know, it, uh, the, the, the song you're talking about is Midnight Sun. In my opinion, yeah. the, only, the only good song on the album. Really. Yeah, but there's, there's a few others where it shows up too. Uh, there's uh, a few other uh, uses of, uh, of guitar that are kind of in the same vein where they, they don't pop quite like that, but they're still, uh, they, they still are in uh, that, that vein that work. Uh, you mentioned uh, Midnight Sun. That probably is the best song on the record. Uh, I like Fearless, too. Uh, and yes, is it's kind of a more traditional uh, bedroom uh, uh, soul song mm-hmm. or kind of like a, a like a hookup song. But oh, it's pretty. Uh, yeah, but it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty. And uh, here's the thing. I think that it's a record that if you're not listening or if you're not inclined to care about the lyrics and something like this, which is easy to do, by the way, the lyrics uh, aren't that great. <laughs> no, I mean, well, no, but I mean, the lyrics aren't that great, but, but what they do reveal is that it's a juxtaposition trick where we have a kind of a sunny sounding uh, pop record. And for what it's worth, she's got a song towards the end called the mystic, which almost approaches a Chardet vibe like a lounge vibe. Yikes. And so it's, so it's kind of this sunny uh, sounding record, but it's all about the, uh, the numbness and self pity that comes from breakups and also sort of, uh, numbing codependence in the middle of a relationship that's falling apart. So it's kind of dark, uh, in, in, in that sense. And so there's, there's a darkness, uh, thematically and a lightness, uh, with the music, but again, there's a nice crackle uh, to the production, uh, really uh, surprisingly good uh, guitar playing and uh, lead work uh, from uh, Ms. Yanya. And who knows? Maybe she has a future. 27 years old and she's already producing some good pop music. So let's see what happens. OK, Artie, go away, uh, go uh, take take a dump on this record. I, I won't spend too much time. It's just generic indie pop, generic cookie cutter middle of the road indie pop by someone who really isn't a very good singer. I don't like her voice at all. You can go, she's from London, right? You can go to any pub in London on karaoke night and find someone who sounds just like her. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. No people just as passionate as us about rock and roll. Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. 
Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose, or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Arturo, uh, here's a challenge as we start to talk about uh, what derisively is uh, usually referred to as kraut rock, but we will drop that term here shortly. Uh, here's a nice game to play. Name that influence. <laughs> it's a trick question because it's all inclusive. Yeah. If it if it was happening in America and it was happening in Britain, it got filtered through a Germanic factory. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, when we talk about these bands and these artists, we really have to go into and, and, and where they came from, not just musically, but culturally, socially, historically, economically even. You need you need historical context. All of these musicians and artists we will discuss were born in the 1940s or a little before. Chronologically, this puts them as basically Germany's first post-World War II generation. If you know anything about history, you can imagine that this would have been one psychologically damaged, whacked out generation to be a part of. No shit. <laughs> you know, um, if you think American baby boomers had it rough with the threat of nuclear war with the Soviet Union hovering over their heads. Try dealing with the emotional scars of having lost not one, but two world wars, and with the ghosts of Adolf Hitler and Nazism consistently looking over your shoulder to remind you that you were indeed the bad guys and that you deserve to have your country destroyed. <laughs> you know? yeah, that, um, yeah, that, yeah, that would fuck with me too. Yeah, it makes sense that this up and coming generation throughout the whole country had, if not an obsession with, then a very strong preoccupation with a rejection of many, if not most of their forefathers' moral, social, and political values. Think about it. World War II ended in 1945, but even well into the 1960s, many of the people in positions of political and socioeconomic power lawyers, judges, doctors, politicians, etc. They were all carryovers from the Nazi regime. If you think American baby boomers were in their right to rebel against the conservatism and austerity of their parents' generation, imagine being the German equivalent of a baby boomer, knowing full well that your parents were outright Nazis and fascists. <laughs> um, <laughs> naturally, as it is in every country and culture, Artists were at the forefront of such radical thought and change. And make no mistake about it, what became known as the Krautrock scene was as artistic as artistic got. The vast majority of these figures we'll talk about were either classically trained musicians, art school graduates, art school dropouts, or a little combination of all of the above. And if a rejection of the turmoil and general albatross of their country's political and social history was in order, it makes sense that these folks would take a similar approach to what was at the time the most dominant and popular pop cultural musical force at the time, rock music. The impact of the Beatles and their followers weren't relegated to just the UK and the US. 
The whole world felt it, and German youth would soon put their own stamp on this revolutionary music. And for as, ecle- as eclectic and diverse and as different from each other as all these bands in Germany were, what united them was a desire to strip rock and roll from its blues roots and make a decidedly and unabashedly European-flavored style of the music. After all, you can't really, in all fairness, expect a bunch of white German dudes in a country that wasn't ethnically diverse at the time, that was ethnically purified by Hitler. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, to identify with African-American sharecroppers from the American South, whose deep feeling for the blues was an echo of the pain of slavery. <laughs> you know, yeah. this, this stripping of rock from its blues roots is very much in keeping with European art school thought and its tendency to deconstruct for the purpose of building something new from the broken pieces. If you know anything about the history of film and cinema, you would know that it was European countries in the early 20th century that first gave movies their esoteric value. Sure. It was only a matter of time before the old continent did the same with music, and particularly rock and roll, by having its great artists tackle rock music from the perspective of people whose musical traditions weren't based on blues or jazz or gospel, but rather classical music. It was only fitting that the most radical European-style reworking of rock came from a country that lies in the very middle and in the very heart of the continent. Chris? Sure. And I think you said it. There was this desire because, as you said, these kids knew (laughs) that their parents were Nazis, essentially. And so (laughs) this idea of they wanted to make something newly German, or we we wanted to make a break from Germanic folk, from what was known as Schlager, you know, (laughs) this uh, basically think of like Paul Anka here in America. Schlager Schlager is basically cheesy beer hall sing-along music. Yeah, it is, but it's 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 almost like the the kind of stuff that would show up on Lawrence Welk. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that type of stuff. And yeah. so you want to break free from that and you want to break free from history. And so how do you do that and in the hand uh, uh, in the hands of these art rock school or these art school folks and these basically uh, hippie commune folks. Yeah. Uh, they said, let's take it to outer space or let's take it to a different dimension and let's play with uh, some new computerized toys. You know, let's play with electronics and, and to do these things. And so I think that's where it comes from. And, you know, there is a tradition in Germany, as you said, classical minimalism Mm. and uh, sort of the space around the music, the, uh, the instruments, percussion, Mm. uh, you know, even, this this dr- sense of the dramatic, you know, think Wagner, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, you know that kind of stuff, and you know the operas uh, from the uh, the late nineteenth century, or or even like even in the dramaturge, like with Bertolt Brecht, mm. and so take that kind of tradition and now dose it with LSD and and bring in synthesizers and let's see what happens. I mean, that's basically, I think, uh, where where it goes. Uh, one thing that we should we should talk about now. The name of this episode is a Krautrock exploration. Uh, that begs an obvious question: uh, Where does the term Krautrock come from? And let's talk a little bit about that uh, here uh, prior to getting into the fuller history. So, 
at the beginning of uh, this movement in the late 60s, which if you've seen video of this and there is excellent footage of it, it it's akin to the Ken Kesey uh, acid test uh, parties. It's very hippie and uh, very jammy and very freak out uh, oriented. There is this collective, basically uh, a hippie uh, commune collective, and they were known as Amon Duel. Amon Duel was probably the least crowdy of all the quote unquote kraut rock bands in the sense of uh, their musical sensibilities, but they start off as a hippie commune in Munich. And it's like this rolling community, of you know, people coming and going. And it's one of those things where, okay, fine. There were a few collectives like this in the States and inevitably in, on both sides of the Atlantic, you ended up with like 11 folks and they're making albums in succession or they're making music that side by side makes no sense. And eventually you end up uh, with seven out of the 11 people in the house that play drums (laughs) (laughs) or or percussion. And so there were a handful of serious musicians uh, in that, in that commune, Amon Duel, and they broke off. And so that's why in the history of, of this German uh, progressive rock movement, uh, you will see an Amon Duel 1 and an Amon Duel 2. <laughs> and so Amon Duel 2 is the one we need to concentrate on. So yeah. these are the seri- more serious uh, musicians. They originally start off in the psychedelic freakout jam uh, vein, and so, but also with some Stooges hints as well. And so sure. a lot of their stuff is um, imagine like uh, Iggy and uh, a couple of his guys from the Stooges jamming up there with like Garcia and Lesh. Uh, or, or, or better yet, Iggy and the Stooges joins forces with Jethro Tull. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what it is. And so that was the early part of it. And so it was more, it was more jammy. It was more freak yeah. out. It was more fuzzy. And you yeah. had those types of things. Well, as they were evolving and as they were uh, growing, uh, one of the dudes in Amon Duel became friends with a few of the guys in the band Hawkwind. Uh-huh. Otherwise known as Lemmy Kilmeister's uh, Meister's uh, first band, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, you know, famous, famously uh, uh, stoner rockish. Arguably, they invented stoner rock. I think you can, uh, they can, they can have a claim for that. Yeah. Well, anyway, so they have a, a mutual enthusiasm for each other's music, and so, and probably each other's drugs too. Well, that too. And so Amon Duel, they take a trip over to uh, Britain and the Hawkwind guys introduce uh, the Amon Duel guys to John Peel. Mm-hmm. And John John Peel at the time was the most influential tastemaker in Britain. He was uh, the most well-known uh, DJ on BBC radio. And uh, Peel, uh, you know, likes Amon Duel. Hey, you got these German guys that kind of sound like our crunchier guys from London. Uh, we'll put them on the air. And it's dis- it's debatable, but it was either John Peel or the magazine Melody Maker that as a derisive joke, hey, you know, when, when you win the war, you get to do this kind of thing. Uh, you can taunt the Germans by coming up with this term, Krautrock. Mm-hmm. And so that... We named the episode Krautrock for a couple of reasons. One, that's what you know it as. Uh, two, hey, it has search engine value. You know, hey, go find us out there on Google. But 
it makes a point that if we're going to make a kraut rock exploration, you have to kind of go past the surface. You know, it's not it's not cartoon Germanish, and it's not all just we are the robots. Yeah, yeah, you know? right. And right. so, but anyway, Amon Duel comes out, and they do this album called Yeti, uh, as in the monster Yeti. Yeah, and it's a fabulously weird record. It's basically. Uh, if Jethro Tull was German and it's kind of like, it's the doorstep of almost deep purple, but it has this, it's, you know, three or four minute long fuzzy ass, uh, weirdly, oddly twisting and bending, uh, songs. And so it's one, it was two, basically a double album. First album is all like three and four minute, uh, rock out, you know, rock nuggets, conventional rock nuggets. And then you had a, the second album was, just jams. All improvised. Yeah. Improvisational music. Yeah. yeah. It was all improv jams and uh, those guys could kick ass. I mean, those guys could play. And so yeah. they're one of the more, uh, there were a couple of guitar oriented groups in that, uh, in that whole uh, Amon movement. Duel, very much the most guitar oriented. Yeah. I would say them, if it's not them, it's another band that we'll be talking about in a little bit right. uh, uh, later in this episode. But that's kind of where it starts. Uh, you know, Amon Duel was right there at sort of the the, the swinging happening uh, party uh, origin, uh, young folk upbringing of that German scene. They made their way over to Britain and we came up with our moniker. So just needed to talk about that briefly. All right. All right. So let's start this voyage. It's an exploration, but it's also a trip. We're taking sure. a trip. Throughout yes. every every area, every region of Germany in the 1970s. A lot of these bands came from different places too, which oh, is yeah. really interesting. <clears throat> the first one we'll talk about, Tangerine Dream. If we're being faithful to chronological order and telling the story of Krautrock, besides Amandul, then we start in 1967 when young Edgar Frosa formed Tangerine Dream in Berlin after a stint in you guessed it, art school. If you take a look at the history of Tangerine Dream's revolving door lineups from the beginning up to Frosa's death in 2015, you'll find a whopping 25 people with Frosa himself being the one constant. So for the sake of brevity and with no offense toward the egos of the many musicians who were part of the band, let's treat Tangerine Dream as the Edgar Frosa project. Yep. Report, reportedly, Frosa named the band Tangerine Dream after mishearing the lyrics to the Beatles' Lucy in the, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, where John Lennon sings Tangerine Trees and Marmalade Skies. Frosa thought he heard Tangerine Dreams. The purely synthesized electronic music Tangerine Dream would eventually become known for was always lurking, even in the band the band's earliest years and stages, where they attempted to merge electronic and tape collage sounds with organic instruments such as guitar and drums. This wouldn't last long, though, as starting with 1971's Alpha Centauri and 1972's Zeit saw Frosa and his group dive further and further into purely synthesized electronics to create what can be described as spooky, dark, ambient space music. It was 1973's Atem that got Tangerine Dream attention and recognition beyond Germany with the BBC's John Peel, you mentioned him, Chris, uh, playing music from that album on his radio show and vocally championing the group. 
Virgin Records head honcho Richard Branson took notice and he signed them onto Virgin soon after. The two albums that followed, Fedra in 1974 and Rubicon in 1975, were the band's most critically acclaimed and commercially successful albums. The work Edgar Frosa would forever be known for and the music that cemented Tangerine Dream's legacy as forebears of ambient and new age music. Personally, I'm not a real fan of Tangerine Dream, a little too ambient and continuously slow for me, but they are absolutely essential in the story of Krautrock and were very influential. Just listen to the album Rubicon. You can totally imagine a young Giorgio Moroder listening to it and taking a sped up version of it as the template for the electro disco pop he would craft later in the decade and have enormous success with. See Donna Summer. Chris? Yeah. The one thing about Edgar Frosa to mention, too, is that he, along with uh, or or records, uh, OHR, or records, yeah. uh, they were one of the main uh, German rock labels that uh, that put this music forward, uh, not only into Germany, but also into the European mainstream. And uh, there was an executive at Or Records named Rolf Ulrich Kaiser. Uh, mm-hmm. doesn't get more generic German than that. Uh, <laughs> they, the two of these two guys are the ones that came up with the, uh, the label that counts, which is Cosmische Musik. Yeah. Uh, German for cosmic music. And they obviously, uh, did that for a reason. Uh, Amon Duel, uh, kind of did this. And a lot of the other, uh, bands, uh, we'll talk about a few of them. As well, uh, there seemed to have been this odd competition at the beginning to see who could do the best alternate soundtrack for the movie 2001. Yeah, uh, it just, it, it's funny. just <laughs> yeah, it just kind of it just kind of seemed uh, seemed that way. My favorite of the Tangerine Dream records, by the way, is Zeit, mm. uh, which. And this is one of the funnier lines that uh, Cope has in his his book. He calls it the orb on speed metal. <laughs> and, and I shit you not, yeah. uh, which I, I think is hilarious because it is a slow churning, uh, odd, spooky record. Yeah. And, you know, that's four songs and it's like the average is like 17 minutes long or something. Yeah. yeah but they're, they're, they're compositions. They're not real songs. Yeah. It's compositions. But Zeit is the German word for time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, there's this idea that the primitive and the, and the futurist or the futuristic uh, kind of meet in the, in the middle or meet in the same place. And that's yeah. kind of what the concept is here is like, what if time uh, was really because there's a, a notion in uh, many religions actually in the world that God exists outside of time. Mm. And so. Right. I, I guess maybe the concept is uh, what if time existed outside of time along with God? Mm-hmm, and right. so the idea is that everything is happening, you know, everything everywhere all at once, but dum bump. Yeah. So I just thought that that's kind of fascinating. Other than that, like you said, a lot of their stuff is at least those first three or four records are kind of sloppy. Uh, they kind of go back and forth between uh, the ambient uh, electronic explorations and like, four minute knockoffs of, uh, the mother of the mothers of invention. Right. Uh, most specifically, uh, the stuff that Zappa and friends did on uncle meat. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a couple of like downright uh, ripoffs, <laughs> 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 you know, that come out that come out of that. But uh, interesting, like I said, interesting band. Uh, they're definitely a forerunner. And uh, this, by the way, sets up a theme as you talked about this, and you'll talk about this with a few other artists, that this German progressive rock, this cosmic music movement, it travels a road from the formless to an absolutely, utterly definable and original form. So from the formless to the form. And we'll get into that uh, as to where the form uh, comes from. And how influential that ended up being. So Yeah. Speaking of influential, the next band actually is one of my all-time favorite bands. So we travel from Berlin to the large college town of Cologne, where in 1968, classically trained keyboardist Ermin Schmidt formed an experimental trio with classical music teacher Holger Schukai on bass and American David Johnson on flute. After spending time in New York from 1966 to 67, Schmidt became enamored with the avant-garde classical work of Terry Riley, Lamont Young, and Steve Reich, as well as, and perhaps more importantly, the innovative art rock of the Velvet Underground. After recruiting one of Shukai's students, a 19-year-old Michael Caroli on guitar, and Jackie Liebesite, a drummer who was sick of playing in jazz bands. <laughs> he incorporated them in. Uh, Johnson then became disenchanted with how Schmidt and Shukai wanted to further strip away the classical music influence and focus more on rock with a very slight classical and jazz touches. Enter Malcolm Mooney, an African-American sculptor living as an expat in Cologne at the time, who provided an idiosyncratic and improvisational vocal style to a band that was already fashioning a boldly original sound. And the original quintet called Can were born. I mentioned earlier in this episode's parameter setter that Can delved in cosmic rhythmic explorations that stretched trancy repetition to the limit. These jams are almost always improvised live and often improvised in the studio, which meant the group always managed to remain fresh sounding, adding new twists, i.e. tempo changes, alterations of riffs, key changes, etc., to a repertoire of songs that were burnishing the reputation in the rock underground. While their epic space funk jams were spellbinding and hypnotic, for me at least, Michael Caroli's guitar work is what's most captivating about Ken. He was the youngest member of the band, and he crafted a guitar sound never before heard in the rock idiom, and was copied by many guitarists throughout the ensuing years. It had a shimmering, pulsing, liquid sound, oftentimes sounding like a second keyboard in the band. You can hear echoes of it in the guitar work Robert Fripp did on David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy albums from the late 1970s. Oh, no doubt. It wasn't just Bowie and Brian Eno who were listening to Krautrock at the time. You can also hear its influence in the guitar sounds embedded in Talking Heads' exploratory period, also in the late 70s, and also produced by Eno. In modern rock, Caroli's innovations reverberates in the exotic, mind-balming guitar sounds of Mac DeMarco, Kurt Vile, and The War on Drugs. 
after 1969 debut album, Monster Movie, and during the making of a 1970 compilation of music for German art films, simply titled Soundtracks, <laughs> Mooney <laughs> left the band and went back to America due to mental health issues. Enter Demo Suzuki a bohemian hippie busker from Japan who just happened to be hanging outside a pub in Cologne doing improvisational scat singing and vocal noises that approximated melodies. The members of Ken, who were at the pub at the time, liked what they heard and, hey, a new lead singer. Uh, (laughs) Suzuki was a very, very lucky man because very soon he was to be a part of a trilogy of albums that would bring Ken's strange and original sound to a wider audience throughout Europe and the UK. Tago Mago from 1971, Ege Bamiyasi from 1972, and Future Days from 1973 would prove to be the foundation of their legacy. After Suzuki left the band in 1974 to marry his German girlfriend and become a Jehovah's Witness, Can continued as a quartet with Schmidt and Caroli alternating as vocalists. Can would continue to release albums throughout through 1979, and these years would see them traverse the art rock spectrum, ambient music, pop rock, electro pop, even reggae and dub. Yet no matter what style they tried their hands at, they always sounded fundamentally and fascinatingly like Can. Not only were they probably the greatest of all the kraut rock bands, they're probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest and most inspirational progressive rock band of all time, at least in my opinion. Chris? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was definitely uh, rock music without boundaries and without formalism, uh, for sure. And I think that that, it's not really by design, it's by training. And specifically, Mm. uh, Holger Zuke. Uh, yeah. was an understudy of a uh, very uh, well-regarded and influential uh, composer named mm. Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Yeah. Who, by the late 50s, his work had kind of broken out and had gotten uh, some interest. Stockhausen is a very important progenitor or or forerunner of of. Uh, this uh, cosmic music in the sense that he experimented with that industrial percussion sound, that very cold, uh, very almost clanging uh, uh, percussion uh, minimalist uh, style. And so Mm -hmm. it's classical music as rendered through clang, bang, boom of uh, (laughs) almost industrial factory Uh, gears, uh, those types of things. And he was playing with, uh, with those rhythms and Zuke uh, studied under Stockhausen. And so right. he's classically trained classical guy. Well, it turns out, you know, Zuke uh, you know, was an open-minded musician. Well, he gets turned on to the Beatles and the stones and everything that was going on in Britain and says, Whoa, okay, maybe, maybe we should take a, a stab at that. And so it's like almost having to retrain yourself to go from being like a serious, uh, a serious artiste in the minimalist sense to like, you know, being able to like jam out the progressive rock. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's training done untrained. <laughs> and, right. uh, yeah, and they, it, they basically had to strip out their classical influences in order to get into rock music, which is what was needed. Right. But it, even then, I mean, the percussion style and some of the rhythms still come from that. I mean, you know, it's, it's ingrained in what they were doing. And so it's essentially can is, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess you can't call them the most the most German of these bands, but musically, the the Germanic influence is undeniable and inescapable. But they, but they do. They also are of all these German bands, the one that I think are most tied to American rock and roll because there's funk in what can do. Oh there's yeah, serious funk, more funk in Can than any of the other groups. Oh yeah, and I, I would say that uh, I think Hendrix probably counts yeah. as a big influence on them sure. too. Sure, sure. You know, yeah. yeah, that sort of again boundless uh, energy that you could find. Uh, yeah. you know, and the sort of the spaces that no one else has found yet. I mean that, so they're, I guess you could say can and Hendrix were spiritual cousins. Sure. Now, speaking of spaces that no one has found yet, our <laughs> Kraut Rock tour takes us now to Munich in 1969, where Florian Fricke founded Popol Vuh, perhaps the most unique sounding of all the progressive German bands of the 1970s. Their name was taken from the ancient Mayan language, meaning meaning meeting place. And unlike their Krautrock contemporaries who started with organic instrumentation and transitioned to electronica, Popol Vuh went the opposite way. Fricka started the group as an experimental electronic project that would evolve to incorporate layers of acoustic and electric guitar, woodwind instruments, acoustic pianos, and orchestral arrangements. How does one describe Popol Vuh's rich sound? I would describe it as the center of a quadrant informed by spacey psychedelia, European classical music, exotic Asian instrumental arrangements of the Chinese and Tibetan variety, noodly guitar-driven jam band rock, and haunting church-inspired choral music. The result was mind-bending, intoxicating, and as spiritual as music can get without adhering to any particular religion. The renowned German filmmaker Werner Herzog was so enthralled to the music of Popol Vuh that he commissioned them to score the music to four of his own films. Aguirre, The Wrath of God from 1972, which all of you should see. It was the inspiration for Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Herzog's 1979 remake of the silent horror film Nosferatu the Vampire, uh, Fitzcarraldo from 1982, and Cobra Verde from 1987. If you're interested in listening to non-soundtrack music by Popol Vuh, my pick is 1976's Letzte Tage, Letzte Nachte, translated into English as Last Days, Last Nights which is a wonderful and perfect encapsulation of Florian Fricka's glorious and wide-ranging vision. After the 1987 Cobra Verde soundtrack, Popol Vuh's output slowed down to about an album every three or four years until Fricka's death in 2001. Other than Noi in their most serene moments, there is no Krautrock band whose music can be described as utterly and breathtakingly beautiful. They are not only worth checking out, but worth a discography deep dive. Chris? Oh, yeah. Oh, I agree with that. And uh, my personal uh, favorite of theirs is uh, early from the catalog, I believe, 1970. Often, oh. It's Offenstund, ah. uh, which translates into uh, the Hour of Monkeys, <laughs> which, which again, makes me wonder if 2001 is, is sort of a forerunner to this. Yeah. Now, here is one thing about... Uh, cosmic music and German progressive rock. Uh, there's this tension and there's, there's two vibes 
that one gets if you look at the entire body of work or you look at the entire canon. There's two vibes, I guess, or categories or descriptors that you could use that would be fair. Yeah. Uh, there's ambient on the one end and mechanical on the other. Yeah. The best of these bands, including Popol Vuh, uh, somehow could pull off the neat magic trick of doing ambient and mechanical at the same time. Same time, yeah. <laughs> and and Offenstund is a perfect example of that. It is space-oriented, compositional music, but that has a uh, percussion and... Uh, how would you, What would you say? It's almost... It's almost like a space xylophone. It's almost like a an alien xylophone. Yeah, that goes Sounds through. A lot like that, yeah, yeah, that goes through some of this, and you know, just some plain old just like drum rolls, uh, uh, rumbling through the middle of some of uh, some of this music. And I would say that uh, clocks are a big influence too, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of riffs on time, and there's a lot right. of sort of, you know, we're running out of time kind of vibe. So it's kind of do 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 do. And, yeah. and those types of things. And so uh, those are big influences on them. And so the ambient and the mechanical at the same time, that is a really, really, really neat trick. Uh, Florian Fricka was one of the best of, of it, but uh, probably not the best. And we'll yeah, get into you, those guys here. Good though. Popol yeah. Vuh is lovely music, man. Oh, it is. It's beautiful. Yeah. All right. Now we go back to Berlin. Still in 1969, where Hans Joachim Rodelius... Dieter Mobius and Konrad Schnitzler met at an oh-so-typically German experimental live music venue called the Zodiac Free Arts Lab and decided to create really out there, really experimental electronic music as a trio called Cluster with a K. Schnitzler soon left the group and Rodelius and Mobius carried on as a duo, renaming themselves Cluster with a C. In about a 10-year span from 1971 to 81, Cluster would produce a body of purely electronic work unmatched by any other krautrock group for its relentless experimentation and willful abstraction. Whereas Kraftwerk wanted you to dance and tickle your ears with their earworm melodies, much more on Kraftwerk later, Cluster wanted to wash over you with their eerie, haunting, sometimes dissonant soundscapes. The most noteworthy thing about Cluster for casual music fans was their patronage from Brian Eno, who was a massive fan and sang their praises every chance he got in the music press in the mid-1970s. Eno would even go on to record two albums of beautiful ambient music with them in 1977 and 78. Now, I'll admit, early Cluster albums can be a rough listen for people yeah. who want their electronica to be accessible. But in 1974, the duo created their masterpiece with the album Zuckerzeit, where they crafted a more listener-friendly, pop-oriented style by augmenting catchy rhythms and lovely pastoral melodies to their already cutting-edge electronic sound. The dirty lo-fi sound of Cluster's new electronic direction would prove to be a huge influence and uh, and would hugely influence the synth pop emerging from the UK's post-punk scene in the late 1970s. If there's only one Cluster album for you to absorb, it is Zuckerzeit. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Zuckerzeit uh, is one of those albums that 
influenced everybody that came after it. Uh, one, yeah. I've used this line with several albums over the course of uh, this podcast life. If you haven't heard it, yes, you have. <laughs> uh, it has that much influence, obviously on Eno, uh, and so it, you know. And then, obviously, in the late '90s, it manifests itself with some of the uh, EDM uh, breakout stars uh, sure. in Europe and Radiohead. Uh, for yeah. sure, I think uh, there's influence uh, uh, influence there. I'd say, obviously, you know, Brian Eno. It, it actually manifests itself in some of the rock, uh, Roxy music stuff. Yeah, uh, that was being done around this time as well. So, uh, very, very influential uh, record. You're right. If anybody embodies the formless to the form journey yeah. of uh, of cosmic music and of of Germanic progressive rock, it is this band. Yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. know, and uh, it. I think that they were a a, a beneficiary of uh, some of the work and some of the rhythmic uh, innovations of uh, the next couple of bands we're uh, we're going to talk about. Uh, I think that there's a direct uh, direct lineage. Uh, And and, uh, I think it bears mentioning now uh, here too, and I think we've hit a couple of spots like this, but it's going to accelerate. This was a very uh, incestuous uh, scene or incestuous uh, community of bands. It's very much like Seattle where a lot of these folks, they uh, were in bands with each other and then they hated each other. They went and formed other bands and then they came back together. Or uh, the two of the guys that were in this band go over and join that band. And so you get these these iterations. So our Krautrock exploration will now make a stop in Dusseldorf in the late 1960s, where Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider met at a prestigious music school called the Robert Schumann Hochschule. In due time, the band they would form would eventually morph into Kraftwerk and become arguably the single most important and influential musical collective the entire nation of Germany ever produced. And that's saying something. Uh, Hutter and Schneider formed a group called Organization and were fortunate enough to get a record deal with RCA Records in Germany. What they put out in 1970 was an album of avant-garde music concrete nonsense called Tone Float that, you know, <laughs> uh, predictably <laughs> predictably didn't sell anything and led to organization promptly breaking up. Sure. Hooter and Schneider regrouped that same year and formed Kraftwerk, which translates into German as Power Station. Uh, and, and they got together with a lineup that remained somewhat fluctuated until it solidified several years later. First, the duo added drummer Klaus Dinger, and Kraftwerk's self-titled debut, released in late 1970, was an awkward hybrid of synthesizer sounds and progressive rock that included layers of flutes, violins, and cheesy organs. Hooter then briefly left the band to finish his degree in architecture, while Schneider carried on with Dinger and new guitarist Michael Rother through most of 1971. This didn't last long at all, as Dinger and Rother left soon afterward to form the band Noi. Much more on that outfit later on. And Hooter came back into the fold. The duo put out Kraftwerk 2 in 1972 as a purely instrumental synthesizer-free excursion into light prog rock designed to bore the shit out of as many listeners as possible. <laughs> but... 
Hooter and Schneider were nothing if not persistent and soon realized focusing on synthesizers and a purely electronic sound with pop melodies and songcraft was the way to go. The duo put out another instrumental album simply titled Ralph and Ralph und Florian in 1973 <laughs> that pointed the way to what Kraftwerk would become known for. They brought in a third member in Wolfgang Fleur to record a new Kraftwerk album called Autobahn. Released in 1974, the album was a commercial breakthrough beyond anything the group and their label imagined. The 22-minute title track, condensed as a three-and-a-half-minute single for commercial purposes, was a groundbreaking piece of rhythmic, electronic majesty that managed to be both esoteric in its pop art concept, a tribute to Germany's motorways, and catchy and hooky as all hell. It was a massive hit, uh, not just in Germany and throughout Europe, but in the U.S. and U.K. as well. This led to an even bigger record deal with EMI and bringing in Carl Bartos as a fourth member, making Kraftwerk the classic quartet lineup that they became known for. Four guys standing in front of machines, all in matching suits with slicked back hair and light makeup to give their faces a blank robotic look. Yep. Kraftwerk cut a striking image on stage as they attempted to capitalize on the success of Autobahn as a live touring band. Their next album, Radioactivity, came in 1975. While it didn't sell as much as the previous album, it sold enough to solidify Kraftwerk as the world's preeminent avant-garde electronic pop band. And pop is the key word here, as the group increasingly utilized sung vocals, engaging melodies, and tighter rhythms in order to carry over their shockingly original and innovative sound, really, to a, a, a broader audience. David Bowie and Brian Eno were listening, as were legions of younger generation future musicians who would become known as Joy Division, New Order, Depeche Mode, Tubeway Army, i.e. the group that gave us Gary Newman, The Human League, and Throbbing Gristle. Through them, legions of future electro-pop alternative and indie artists, such as Pulp, Blur, Latigue, Peaches, Gorillas, LCD Sound System, and of course, one of this podcast's new favorite bands, Automatic, would yep. be exposed to the gospel of Kraftwerk. I mentioned earlier in our Can segment that their trilogy of albums from the early 1970s formed the bedrock of their reputation and legacy. Uh, the same can be said for Kraftwerk later in the 70s, as if the commercial and critical success of Autobahn and Radioactivity weren't enough. Trans-Europe Express from 1977, The Man Machine from 1978, and Computer World from 1981 were defining statements of synth-pop perfection that few, if any, imitators could match, and they, all three of them were massive commercial successes. Behind the robotic image and oh-so-distinctly European sound, what set Kraftwerk apart was how brilliant they were at the art of pop songwriting. Oh, yeah. They really were the German Beatles in a lot of ways. Um, this groundbreaking style and sound wouldn't have carried over to the masses if they didn't have the goods in regard to beautiful melodies and subversive lyrics at once glorifying humanity's relationship to technology while at the same time questioning humanity's ever-increasing obsession with it and what that obsession does to humanity's self-image. 
that directly echoes today's social media-obsessed society. Shortly after the release of 1986's Electric Café, Wolfgang Floor left the group while Karl Bartos left in 1990. Ralph Hooter and Florian Schneider would continue carrying the Kraftwerk flag as a live touring band until Schneider left in 2008, leaving Hooter as the sole remaining member with a cast of younger musicians performing as Kraftwerk to this <laughs> day. In a way, it's good that they didn't release any real new Kraftwerk music after the mid-1980s. They didn't really need to because anything new would be compared to and ultimately overwhelmed by the shadow cast by their titanic 1970s catalog. Kraftwerk didn't just invent the 1980s and open the door for any kind of retro 80s synth pop in the 21st century. They practically invented modern pop music as we know it. And Chris, you know who also agrees with that? Who? 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 Our friend Robert Criscow. Oh, wow. And his, uh, his A minus review for Trans Europe Express in 1977 quote, No, I have not shorted out or fallen in love with a cyborg. No, I do not like Kraftwerk's previous Kraftwerk radioactivity, which consists mostly of bleeps. But this shares with Autobahn a simple minded air of mock furious fascination with melody and repetition. Plus, its textural effects sound like parodies by some cosmic schoolboy of every lush synthesizer surge that's ever stuck in your gullet, yet also work the way those surges are supposed to work. Plus, the cover and sleeve photos are suitable for framing. A minus. Gee, condescend much, Bob? <laughs> uh, yeah. Craftwork uh, is uh, really, really interesting that you know, they came up with that stage uh, shtick. And so, of course, they could plug in young members. They were kind of like Kiss, you know. I mean, you know, nobody's there for, after a while, it's not the music, it's the show, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, so, definitely. So, yeah, so I think that's part of it. Uh, here's where we get to bring up, I think, a central concept or a, a central innovation uh, that you could say came from these German musicians and it really turns a corner and gets breaks out wide in 74 and 75. And this is the beat known as Motorik. 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 M-O-T-O-R-I-K. Yeah. This is a uh, drum, uh, a drumming style that is a 4-4 uh, drumming construct that when you put it together ha has kind of an icy, detached, almost uh, sort of subtly propulsive uh, beat behind things. And it, what it does is it almost serves as a foundation for everything that um, is around it. it it's, it's the push, you know, it's, it's not a yeah. fill, it's a push because yeah. of, uh, because of that, uh, because of that beat and because of that propulsion. Uh, I believe it's Noy and and uh, uh, the uh, the drummer there that that first uh, develops this. Yes, but it is. We'll we'll talk about Noy later. Yeah, Mister Danger. Yeah. But it's Kraftwerk that perfects it. Uh, mm. You know, they they run with it. Obviously, Autobahn, uh, the song, the middle of uh, of that suite uh, is the best use of Motorik I think uh, ever. 
besides later Kraftwerk. So Kraftwerk kind of builds their stuff around that. Like you said, they had the songwriting, they had the concept. Uh, I think that the other artists through their musicianship and their sort of, uh, I guess, what would you say, kind of highfalutin uh, perch, they were playing around and hinting at the concept. Well, Kraftwerk just kind of put it out there. It's uh, we're the music of the future. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And and yeah. it, it kind of lays the futurism bare. If you didn't think it was futurism before uh, with Florian Schneider and yeah. uh, and uh, his brother, Rolf, there, Rolf Hooter, Hooter uh, yeah. they I mean, they basically just uh, plastered it for everybody, uh, everyone to see. On this episode, we explored the fascinating history of the 1970s German progressive rock movement known as Krautrock. The next episode will be a very personal episode, at least for one of yours truly curmudgeons. R.E.M. were an iconic band of the 1980s and 90s. They pulled that rare feat of being both critical darlings and commercially successful arena rockers. They got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in just their first year of eligibility in 2006. Yet why does it feel like their impact and influence, and really their overall popularity, is fading away as the 21st century moves on? Unlike their peers such as The Cure and U2, it seems like most millennial and Gen Z rock music fans haven't taken to the rich eclecticism and, I guess by now, underratedly influential music of their dense discography. What happened? Why aren't what is, at least in the curmudgeon's opinions, one of the 10 greatest and most important American bands of all time not seen with the reverence that they deserve? Join us next time as we get to the bottom of this issue in an episode titled R.E.M. Remember those guys? Arturo, yeah. did you know that Timothy Leary has a role to play in the story of Krautrock? Yes, I do. All right. Well, explain. Oh, here we go. So back we go to Berlin circa 1970 when guitarist and keyboardist Manuel Gottsching formed the trio Ashra Temple, Temple spelled with E-L, not L-E, with drummer Klaus Schulze and bassist Hartmut Enke. They weren't the only German band to attempt the melding of traditional rock instrumentation with synthesized electronica while stripping away rock's blues element to create spacey psychedelia and ambient soundscapes with a vocal choir flourishes. There were two differences, though. First, there was a heaviness and an understated aggression to Ashra Temple's sound that made them come off like Tangerine Dream with balls. <laughs> Second, while most of these kraut rock bands carefully crafted their sound as well as their songs, Ashra Temple put an emphasis on improvisation, both in the studio and on stage, that could alternately lead to moments of cosmic splendor as well as cosmic slop, <laughs> with albums usually having songs, quote-unquote, that span the entire side of an LP. Peak period Ashra Temple released five albums between 1971 and 73, the most notable being 1972's Deep Space Rumination Jam 7-Up, with 
spoken word narration by renowned psychologist and LSD advocate, Timothy Leary. It's worth checking out just for that. Oh, yeah. How, however, it was after the band broke up in 1976, though, that Manuel Gotching began to make a larger mark on the music world with his solo work. First came his 1975 solo album, Inventions for Solo Guitar, an all-instrumental album written and recorded entirely by Gotching using his array of layers of electric guitars. It's a record of stately beauty and grace that doesn't leave Ashra Temple's cosmic themes behind with indelibly trippy song titles such as Echo Waves, Quasar Sphere, and Pluralis. All right. <laughs> however, however, it was his second solo album, E2-E4, recorded in 1981 but released in 1984, where uh, Gotching made his stamp with the most his most important and enduring work. Recorded with an array of synthesizers, a sequencer, and minimal guitar accompaniment, the album is a one-hour-long electronic instrumental that proved absolutely pivotal in the development of techno and house music and their explosion in the late 1980s in Chicago, Detroit, and the UK. Ambient house music superstars The Orb would also publicly claim that the album uh, was a direct inspiration to their pioneering work in the early 1990s. Um, second time we've name-checked the orb in this episode. <laughs> Not a bad legacy for a gearhead geek who named the record after an opening chess move expressed in an algebraic notation. <laughs> uh, Gottsching's yeah. recordings would be sporadic until his death late last year, but he definitely made his living as a live touring artist with on and off Ashra Temple reunions thrown in. But if you want to lose yourself into the bliss of meditative techno, E2-E4 is a startling beauty of a record whose surface repetition hides subtle changes in tone and harmonics throughout the one-hour track. It sounds just as good now as it was revolutionary then. Chris? Yeah, Ashra Temple is some freaky-deaky shit. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Gotching is uh, pretty much a genius with his his guitar uh, stylings and other uh, musical uh, creativity and the ways that he manifested that uh, itself. And so I enjoy seven up because it is split into uh, two suites space yeah. and time. Mm -hmm. uh, Leary is more uh, prominent on space. Uh, time gets more, uh, gets more ambient, gets more uh, formless. Uh, let me share something from the cope book that uh, I think is hilarious or I think is wonderful. This is him about Ashra Temple and about their, uh, their authenticity as a cosmic uh, music uh, wonderkind. He says, quote, sure, it was a fucking cosmic freakout, but it was played by Renaissance man and cosmic man at the same time. Fuck Jim Morrison's ridiculous Renaissance, Renaissance man of the land description. That was just an excuse to be a fat slob. <laughs> that was just an existentialist knee jerk. No, no, no. These freaks were fit. Superhuman, Superman. End quote. Hmm. So yeah, he does. He doesn't like the doors very much, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wonder why. I which, well, although for what it's worth, a lot of the organ, uh, yeah, and even Cope admits this that a lot of the organ in the early uh, stuff here in the cosmic music German progressive rock scene. 
was an attempt to emulate Ray Manzarek. Yeah. Yeah. And the that's, doors, where, that's where a lot of it comes yeah, from. Yeah. The doors are pretty popular in Europe. <laughs> they yeah. weren't just big in America. I mean, I'm telling you, all that stuff that was big in America and, and Britain at the same time, it's like, we want to be that, but we don't want to be quite that. So it's exactly. kind of like, how can we Germanize Jim Morrison or how can we Germanize Ray Manzarek? So. Right. Exactly. Interesting. Anyway, speaking of the German version of that, we go to the German version of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Great band. We stay, yeah. We stay in Berlin circa 1970 for the birth of Agitation Free, the Krautrock band least indebted to or even interested in electronic sounds. Instead, they restricted electronica to subtle underpinnings of texture in order to support the intricate and sublime interplay of the quartet whose music can be described as Germany's answer to the Grateful Dead. But if the Dead had consistently tighter percussion rhythms, two Jerry Garcias, and a steady diet of Middle Eastern and North African tones and harmonics. Yep. Guitarists Lutz Ulbrich and Lutz Kramer actually got together with bassist Michael Gunther and drummer Christ, uh, Christoph Franke in 1967 and called themselves Agitation. Once they found out a few years later that another band with the name Agitation existed, they changed their name to Agitation Free in 1970. For a while, they shared the same aversion to recording studios that fellow cosmic jam band Tradgras Okstenar from Sweden had until a club tour through Egypt, Greece, and Cyprus in 1971 made such an impression on them due to those countries' traditional music styles that Agitation Free decided to make a record of how much their music changed from those influences. The result was the mind-blowing 1972 album, Malesh. Like the best of these 1970s kraut rock bands, Agitation Free's rock aggression was understated, but it was also enhanced by a healthy dose of trance-inducing psychedelia, moving and affecting guitar lines and interplay, and inventive drumming that managed to be virtuosic while also supporting what the guitarists were doing in taking the band's sound to the cosmos. It was spaced-out ambient music done with organic instrumentation. Malesh is a wonder to behold, and their second album, simply titled Second, is almost as good, with a warmer sound and laid-back song structures, aligning them even more with the American-style jam band Ethos. The classic lineup inexplicably broke up in 1974, but guitarist Lutz Ulbrich and bassist Michael Gunther would lead various on-and-off incarnations of the band through the years with a revolving door of members and regularly do world tours until they disbanded for good in 2014. If you ever wondered what jam band music done by sophisticated Europeans would sound like, then Agitation Free is your jam. Chris? Yeah, and and Malish is blues for Allah on meth. Uh, it is uh, it is really really strong. Uh, it it has obviously it has much more of a backbeat, and so it has it's it's almost a, a melding of uh, Middle Eastern influences, uh, American jam band, and almost I, I guess you you know there's a jazz underpinning too. And sure, yeah. And it's it's a it's a freaky record, but it's good. Uh, some awesome lead guitar playing, uh, like you said, the drumming is awesome, and it really is an accomplishment. And uh, they're one of the few of these bands that you could say 
uh, it was the axe first, the axe second, and the axe third. I mean, there's uh, <laughs> not a lot of these bands are guitar driven. Yeah. Uh, I guess you could say that Amon Duel 2 became that. And then the only right. other band that off the top of my head is kind of in that same boat, it would be like Guru Guru. Yeah. And I, I know why we left off because they're kind of like, uh, they're the most blatant ripoff of the Mothers of Invention of that whole bunch, <laughs> you know, but. Uh, yeah, like wonderful, wonderful guitar stuff. Uh, you know, like I said, Mollish is, is definitely, uh, definitely an accomplishment and kind of like can these guys, they're of, they're of that German progressive movement, but they're, they're not really, if you're going to tell a clean narrative, they come at it from tangents as opposed to sort of. Uh, this sort of, Hey, you know, Klaus, you know, Klaus knows Roy and Rolf knows Florian and sure. Florian knows Florian, you know, it, it's not, it's not really part of that for sure. Mm. Oh, and so, hey. and so here's, here's a segue. So Arturo now what's new. <laughs> right. The Krautrock time machine will now place us in 1971 back in Dusseldorf, home of Kraftwerk for the formation of Neu. N-E-U with an exclamation point. Uh, it, it means new in German. Uh, perhaps the only one of the progressive German bands of this era that can rival Can and Kraftwerk for importance and influence. Oh, yeah. For a brief time in 1971, drummer Klaus Dinger and guitarist Michael Rother were touring members of Kraftwerk when the Brain Trust duo of Ralph Hooter and Florian Schneider decided to push further into electronica and abandon conventional instruments. Dinger and Rother decided to strike out on their own under the moniker Neue, new in German, which itself was a it's a, it's a, in, in of itself was a subversive comment on consumerism and commercialism with how much the word was constantly used in advertising at the time. In the excellent 2009 BBC documentary, Krautrock, The Rebirth of Germany, Iggy Pop is interviewed, and while discussing Noi, he refers to their sound as psychedelic pastoralism. (laughs) Frankly, there is no better way to describe the deceptively simple yet revolutionary music that Noi concocted on their self-titled debut album from 1972. It sold only 30,000 copies at the time of its release, far from the commercial crossover appeal of Can and Kraftwerk, but its artistic impact was just as immeasurable as the best work of those two other bands. What became known in music critics speak as the consistent, repetitive, motorique rhythm, that was born here, really. Mm-hmm, Klaus yeah. Singer's approach to rhythm was that of meditation. Guitarist Michael Rother claimed they were fascinated by the movement of water and they wanted to craft a sound that evoked the endless majesty of humanity's life force. Yes. Rother's approach to guitar was that of subtle impressionism. In his own way, he was just as innovative with the instrument as Jimi Hendrix was, coaxing sounds that, that a guitar had never produced before. Tape loops, synthesizer squelches, electronic textures that soothed as well as excited. All of these came from Rother's inventive use of the guitar. Now, while recording their second album, 1973's Noi 2, their label Brain Records refused to give them any more advance money due to how poorly the first album sold. Having recorded only one LP side's worth of music, 
Dinger and Rother stumbled upon one of the earliest, most pioneering uses of remixing. <laughs> to fill up the LP second side, they took two songs, Neuschni and Super, and manipulated the tracks by playing them at different speeds, ranging from anywhere from 16 to 17 RPM, messing with the tape machine, and even placing the physical record off the center of the turntable. <laughs> the result was a fascinating, if uneven, album that was really at the vanguard of experimental rock. Yeah. The band's true masterpiece, though, would come with 1975's Noi 75, which featured all Rother songs on side A and all Dinger songs on side B. This was by design as much as necessity, since the duo simply weren't getting along at all yeah. at the time. Nevertheless, the album serves as a perfect distillation of everything Noi's music represented up to that point, as well as pointing to the future. The Rother side perfected the motoric rhythms and abstract guitar passages of the first Noi album, while the Dinger side was more abrasive and rocking, presaging the punk explosion of the following year. The band broke up soon after the album came out, but they reunited to record brand new material in 1985 through 86. Personal issues came up again, and Dinger and Rother aborted the recording sessions. The results would see the light of day in 1995 as the fourth Noi album called Noi 4. The album sees Noi trying to capitalize on the popularity of synth pop at the time and sees them make a commercially inclined new wave record. Needless to say, it's no wonder the duo broke up again <laughs> during the recording sessions because Noi, Noi 4 is a dismal attempt at trying to be contemporary, especially for a band that was at its best skirting the mainstream, and being their usual visionary selves. Nevertheless, the first three Noi albums are bold, daring albums of innovation and gorgeous soundscapes that not only ensured the band's legacy, but taken as one whole, served as one of the blueprints for any and all artists merging rock and electronica in both alternative and indie music from the late 1970s onward. Chris? Yeah, and the songs are so seamless and so perfectly arranged. You yeah. have no idea that they're doing anything new. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that yeah. you, you'd have no idea that it's their own formula. And so they're one of those rare artists uh, that was capable of that. Uh, Noise 75, I mean, the more you read about it, it, it's fascinatingly influential. It wasn't an accident at the beginning of uh, this episode when I quoted Julian Cope when he said this is, uh, he, he evoked Johnny Rotten. Wasn't an yeah. accident because Johnny Rotten actually was hugely influenced by the Dinger side of this record, and mm -hmm. some of that influence shows uh, really does show up on Nevermind the Bollocks uh, yeah. a couple of years later. Uh, Bowie obviously was uh, hugely influenced uh, by this record, and so some of the uh, rhythms, I, I think, more the Rother side shows right. up in some of the stuff he did on Station to Station. Sure, and then he kind of. Uh, uh, ape the concept of uh, two sides done differently uh, yeah. when he did low. Although right. I think in, in his, instead of going Rother Dinger, he went Dinger Rother. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. just kind of flipped it on its head. And so yeah. just really, really great stuff. And, you know, Dinger for him to, for those guys to come up with Motorique and uh, you know, Rother, like you said, he just, he was kind of the brain, Whereas Dinger may have been the heart, uh, I yeah. guess maybe that's how that's how you can say it. Uh, just really, just 
great stuff all around. And I think they're the pivot point really where you go because they never were uh, into that formless hippy dippy, uh, right. you know, 28 minute long, uh, like spooky vacuum cleaner sounding jam. <laughs> uh, they never had that phase. They just came yeah. straight out with Motorique yeah. and then it all rose from there. And so by 74, like pretty much every band we've talked about, except for maybe Popol Vuh, uh, yeah. has, has embraced and has gone the, uh, the way of the metronomic metronique or the, uh, motorique, the metronomic, metronomic motorique. motorique. There you go. <laughs> now, uh, we move on to Faust. We've yep. hit most of the major cities in Germany during this Krautrock history tour. Sure. We finally land in Hamburg, the riverside city known among rock aficionados as the place where the young Beatles cut their teeth as a performing band. Sure. Faust formed in the suburban town of Wuma in 1971 and, like Noi, lasted only a few years in their original incarnation, but made an indelible mark as the most confrontational, the most abrasive, and the most relentlessly experimental of all the Krautrock bands. Unlike most of these German prog rock bands, Faust were actually on major labels, their first two on Polydor and their last two on Richard Branson's Virgin. This was due to the seemingly brilliant networking of their Svengali-like manager, former music journalist and record producer Uwe Nettelbeck. If you read the credits to their self-titled debut album from 1971, you'll see standard instrumentation, drums, keyboards, bass, guitar, synthesizer, saxophone. The music they made with these instruments, though, was unlike anything anyone was doing at the time. Dissonance, atonal counterpoints, experimental electronic textures, jarring juxtapositions, and lots and lots of tape loop manipulation. Oh, yeah. It's a really, it's a really tough listen. Their second album, 1972's Faust So Far, tones down the inaccessible abrasiveness just a bit. And lo and behold, tunes start to emerge. <laughs> Imagine it's, that. It's, it's, it's a yeah. remarkable, yeah. It's a remarkably eclectic record with each track presenting a different musical style. Think the minimalist garage rock stomp of the monks merged with the whacked out experimental edge of Mothers of Invention era Frank Zappa. Apparently, Richard Branson loved the band so much that he signed them to Virgin. If he thought he was getting something like Faust so far, he would be sadly mistaken. In what has to be one of the biggest larks in rock history, band producer slash manager Uwe Nettelbeck told Branson he would be getting for free any and everything Faust had been working on since Faust so far. In return, <laughs> in return Branson would sell the album for as low a retail price as possible. Well, it's a good thing that deal was made because Faust's third album, 1973's The Faust Tapes, is two 20-minute LP sides, each one consisting of unrelated fragments and segments of songs spliced together with seemingly no rhyme or reason. It's a curious curveball of a record that really doesn't bear much repeated listening. Alas, we are talking about Faust on this episode for a reason, and that reason is their fourth and final album, The Brilliant Faust Four, also from 1973. Here, the band stopped fucking around and produced one of the most searingly brilliant prog rock opuses ever recorded and a defining document of the Krautrock era. 
sounding at times like a pissed off noi, Frank Zappa doing reggae, Pink Floyd with balls, <laughs> and a more demented Serge Gainsbourg. It reigns in the band's absolutely bonkers tendencies of the band. Uh, so it's in, so it's actually engagingly bonkers yep. with blended musical invention, impressive musicianship, and much better uh, compositions. It clearly wasn't enough to win over Branson and Virgin, however, as the label rejected Faust's fifth album and the, brand, the band soon broke up in 1975. The band's rhythm section, drummer Werner Diermeyer and bassist Jean Herva Perron would cobble together an incarnation of the band in the 1990s, and they've been touring on and off as Faust ever since. But all you need to know what this uncompromising band was capable of, all you need to know, check out Faust 4. Oh, Chris? yeah, but but also check out the Faust tapes just for the, the fascination of uh, them, like you said, having the balls to actually put that out. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. for what it's worth, it sold a hundred thousand copies in Britain. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. it was, it was a hit and yeah. I guess it was, uh, it was one of those seminal things. It's kind of like how people uh, wanted to ride, uh, kisses destroyer record. Yeah. But at the same time, it influenced like all of the guitarists that came, uh, 15 yeah. and 20, uh, years later. Right. Uh, so there was sort of an adoration among the kids, uh, for uh, for the Faust tapes uh, in Britain, and then yeah, obviously the Faust tapes they have they have two real songs on there that are both sure. really strong. Uh, one of them's pretty, one of them is pretty wild, but it does <laughs> kind of give you a preview of what would come on Faust Four. That they actually did have some serious chops. That right. you know when they they stopped being wise guys, and yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe they got in trouble with Branson, which it makes you wonder why. If you have this opportunity to do this thing on a major label uh, and succeed on Richard Branson's dime, why wouldn't you just do Faust Four in the first place? Uh, <laughs> I mean, what the hell were they thinking? I mean, yeah. they sabotaged themselves right there. Uh, you would think if like Faust Four was really Faust Three, uh, yeah. they might have been hugely successful and you know like legendary. I mean, yeah, they're legendary for a reason because they're so fucking weird. Uh, like the first record is a fascinating listen because it almost makes me wonder if it's like a love letter to Yoko Ono. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, that, that first track, nine minutes of, uh, and, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, that I could swear, and I'd have to check this out. And I read that they put in some referential tape loops. I swear there's a piece of the chorus of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, uh, <laughs> loop, looped in there. I'll have to listen again, but. Yeah. I know that they they put some Easter, well, yeah, some some uh, ancient Easter eggs, you know, yeah. these of tape loops in there. I've read that, but I I swear that I heard that, uh, you know, like one, you know, the uh, part of the bridge or the end of one of the choruses or something. It's in there. Uh, well, who who knows? Maybe I'm just you know I'm like smoking crack in my mind or something. But, <laughs> uh, and apparently they were smoking crack in their minds too. So God bless you, Faust. <laughs> And finally, our historical Krautrock tour ends as the last stop is the small countryside village of Forst, where the two members of Cluster, Hans Joachim Rodelius and Dieter Mobius, joined forces with Neu guitarist Michael Rother in 1973 to form the Krautrock supergroup Harmonia. Now, what did they sound like? Well, 
They sounded exactly like what you would expect if the way out there yet beautiful ambient soundscapes of Cluster were grounded and augmented by the exquisite, innovative guitar work of Noi. Otherwise known They're, as New Wave. Right, exactly. Uh, their first album, 1974's Music von Harmonia, is pretty great. But their most brilliant and enduring work is their 1975 album, Deluxe. Yeah. Noise-style motorique rhythms are brought into the mix, but are much more understated and subtly drive the music, making it meditative without being somnolent. It's experimental and original, but it has a warmth that's inviting and bears repeated listening. Brian Eno loved the album so much that he traveled to Forst to record with the trio for 11 days. Recorded in September 1976, but not released until 1997 because the tapes were thought to be lost, Tracks and Traces is an often beautiful and lyrical record, with Eno adding a little more heft and dirt to their sound. These recording sessions would have a monumental impact on Eno as an artist, as soon afterward he would embark on a series of albums producing some of the best work David Bowie and Talking Heads ever did. But if you're interested in hearing some of the best amalgams, uh, some of the or one of the best amalgams of rock and electronica that the Krautrock era ever produced, you'll be hard pressed to find anything better than Harmonia, particularly the album Deluxe. Chris, yeah, this is by far the most radio friendly album of the uh, of the Krautrock slash uh, yeah. uh, Cosmic uh, catalog. Yeah. Or Kosmika. Right. Well, 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 well Kraftwerk are pretty radio friendly too. Yeah, but I'm saying, but but this, but this stuff is just this is like pop music. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, Kraftwerk was catchy and was fun, but this yeah. is pop music, and so mm-hmm. you, you know, like you said, you combine those sensibilities of you know the the ethereal, you know, the ethereal uh, leanings and ambient leanings of Cluster. And then obviously, like you said, Rother's, uh, you know, sort of Rother's songwriting sensibilities. And that's what you get. I mean, you wouldn't have the knack. You probably wouldn't have uh, New Order. You probably wouldn't have, uh, you know, the, to sort of the, the late 70s uh, yeah. uh, New Wave. Uh, I mean, I hear that springing from this. This is definitely right. an influence. And sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for sure. I mean, it, it's probably a, a, a watershed moment in the development of electronic uh, music. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's the two great tastes that go great together theory. <laughs> and, and it, and it definitely works here. And when, you know, which brings me back to my point, I mean, this was as much of a community uh, yeah. as it was uh, anything else. It's not a genre. There was this community of, of interested and like-minded artists that were sort of uh, trading members, trading sounds, trading ideas, and, uh, mm. so that's kind of my last word on that. So, uh, what would you say if you had to wrap it up? Well, two things, uh, one, the ultimate legacy of, and I'm going to stay respectful, cosmic music or yeah. cosmic, cosmic, uh, uh, music. Uh, what would you say the ultimate legacy is? And then what young bands like that have done stuff in the last five years, would you point to that are saying that are carrying on the legacy and are carrying on them? the uh the music the 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 german influence yeah basically the legacy is the influence uh they they, (laughs) that's their legacy really um in their time they inspired people like david bowie and eno and talking heads and like all those post-punk bands onward all the way into the 90s with nine inch nails beck radiohead all that stuff was influenced by 
the by let's, let's call it kraut rock, I guess. And of course, bands of now. Well, I mentioned it in my parameter setter. Working Men's Club, Squid. Um, there, those are the two that come to mind uh, immediately. Gotcha. And of course, in the in, uh, in the noughties, you know, LCD sound system would be unthinkable without the influence of the German bands. Oh, for sure. So you know, so yeah. it's just yeah, it's just a huge, huge swath of influence that they made. And some of them were commercially successful, like Kraftwerk and Can. Some weren't, like Noi. But their their influence was just immeasurable, immeasurable. Really, really hardcore. Yeah. How 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 much how much they impacted a lot of rock music from the late nineteen seventies onward. Yeah, it's kind of a caterpillar butterfly if you think about it. Like the DNA yeah. of Western rock. Uh, yeah. Goes you know goes to the German kids that post war generation. Uh, yeah. They take their spin on it, their instrumentation, their philosophical bent, and uh, their creativity, and out comes a mutation on the other side of, and that's the new DNA. So caterpillar, cocoon, which is kraut rock, butterfly. Yeah. Right. I, re- I really see it that way. And so, yeah. wow, that's a nice evolutionary touch to uh, end this kraut rock exploration on. Uh I like these explorations. We should do more explorations, you know. We, we should. Yeah. yeah. You know, we have to put on our like uncle traveling mat hats and, you know, use, uh, you know, use the butterfly nets and let's go exploring, man. Get our microscopes. Who knows? Maybe. I mean, and there are so many countries and regions of the world around the map we can go to. We can do it. We could do it. We could do an entire three part episode, uh, a three part series on Afrobeat. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say a Zimbabwe exploration. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're gonna we're gonna What's traverse Warwick? the entire African continent. Nigeria here, Ghana here. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then we'll just do the Touaregs, and then we'll do South Africa, otherwise known as Graceland. Uh, yeah. it'll be it'll be a good tour. So uh, with that, as we always do at the end of these episodes, hey, the uh, curmudgeonly community on Facebook uh, has accelerated greatly. We have had seventeen new members in the last two weeks. Nice. Welcome, folks. Uh, it's been pretty lively up there. Uh, apparently, Steely Dan uh, and uh, uh, beautiful songs are touch points. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's 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 kind of funny how. Uh, hello, Leo. Uh, Arturo's brother, Leo, uh, likes uh, Black Sabbath. Changes uh, as a as a beautiful song, which really helped us promotionally because we had just done a uh, a discussion of a cover of that song. So uh, right. thank you, Leo. You you uh, you helped us with cross promotion. Uh, so nice. that yeah, so that's been fun. So anyway, catch us. It's the curmudgeonly community. Facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, it's invite only, but chances are we will let you in. And uh, if you're a member, you can invite your friends in as well. So it's a big old party. Uh, also, if you have any thoughts about what we've said here, any objections, or hey, if you're listening and say, hey, I'd like to be a guest on that podcast. Uh, we we're we're working on some guests. Uh, we may have a surprise uh, addendum uh, to this episode, so uh, stay tuned. Uh, but if you have any of that on your mind, uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And then finally, find us on Twitter uh, at curmudgeonpod. Uh, Twitter is an increasingly weird place. Uh, apparently, <laughs> uh, they really, really, really want me to like like Matt Gates. Uh, and Warren Bobert. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding. Uh, but uh, it's pretty lively artist community. You know, Jason Isbell's got an awesome thread uh, or uh, 
feed. Uh, Steve Gorman from the Black Crows has an awesome feed. So, yeah, follow us there. We tend to engage those folks. We tend to retweet them. So, good stuff. <laughs>